Um, okay, did you guys find that helpful, useful to do that? that <laughs> two people, yes, everyone else, can, you can shake your heads if you didn't. Uh, not much? Um, I can't actually read my notes, so reinterpreting them doesn't help much. Um, it doesn't help to rethink them? I mean, it does, but not with like a set requirement to like this has to be two pages and well it, that's just a way of, of, of asking you to condense um, otherwise you could just throw in everything yeah Ben I feel like we say so much about such a small amount of text it's yeah kinda, it helped me just to kind of like think about how to hammer it down into like a few concrete ideas because we can't if I like dictated every word we said about each of these poems it'd be like 15 pages not yeah two. so you just really you really have to like strain through all the stuff we say. So you did find that helpful? Yeah. Yeah. Be. Okay, good. Um, all right. Other comments? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Okay. Hold your, yeah. I actually found it kind of confusing for stuff that we had come to a resolution, but we had discussed, like, another track. Um, like, for the for the two nurses songs. Yeah. We had talked about different voices with the children and the nurse and who's speaking what. Mm -hmm. But if you take the the interpretation that was basically our resolution. For the um, innocent one, you mean? Or yeah. For, yeah. For, well, I guess, and for experience. Mm -hmm. With the children speaking for the nurse, then all the stuff about different voices wasn't as helpful. Yeah. And so I didn't know how to interpret those notes. Um, okay, it's, I think that's a, that's a really useful question to ask. So that proves that doing the notes is good. Um, I think it's a really useful question to ask because um, what we're distinguishing between what what we talked about on Monday was um, actually teasing out the differences between a whole lot of different um, voices or agencies or ideas about who is speaking um, when we read a poem. Um, and those ideas go from um, the poet herself to the speaker of the poem to a kind of um, maybe speaker of the poem who's imagining another speaker and which is how we were talking about the nurses songs um, that is that it's as songs and 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 partly here were two the reason I wanted to look at those are here are these two incredibly um, simple appearing poems that are actually um, incredibly subtle in the different layerings that occur in those poems. It's like looking at a watercolor and finding out or realizing after a while that the number of washes in the watercolor is, is huge, that it's not just a quick watercolor sketch of something, but that it's been worked over and over and over again to produce extreme subtlety of effect. Um, so the nurse's songs are both simple and subtle. And, and uh, just, I know, I know it's repetitious, but it's also useful. Um, what we can say, or maybe the way we can break it down, is to say that um, there is this idea, which is that um, a poet can write a poem, and when a poet writes a poem, that poem can shift in voices the way songs do, the way songs um, have verses and then choruses. And we talked about rock songs and, and uh, music videos <coughs> in this way. Um, so that when that happens, you still think 
of the um, the poem as written by the poet who's producing different voices that um, as a mosaic or a harmony or a merging of those voices, but the different voices are fine. That sometimes sometimes um, the sometimes the poem says I and sometimes the poem says she um, or they. And that we have no trouble um, with that idea. What Blake so Blake uses that idea, but then the second question we asked, which is which is taking a step back, is but who is it who is presenting these different voices, especially in the innocence version of the nurse's song? That is, first we were simply saying Blake does. That Blake sometimes has the nurse speaking and then he has the children speaking, and then he simply says what happens after all that happens. Um, but um, so that, that first the nurse speaks and says when voices of children are heard on the hill, um, and that's simply the nurse speaking. Um, then the nurse speaks to the children. So she's not speaking to us, she's speaking to the children. Then come home, my children. Um, then the children speak back to the nurse. Then the nurse speaks back to the children. <coughs> then the nurse says, and says okay. And then Blake tells us that all the children played. Um, so on a surface level, that surface is a kind of mosaic of nurse speaking to us, nurse speaking to children, children speaking back to nurse, Blake speaking to us. And we just get from one patch to another to another to another. And that was the first thing we said about it. Okay, so does that make sense to everyone? Um, this, is, this is a three minute version of what took us maybe 20 minutes. Um, but that's because we're getting so good now. Um, then what we talked about Monday was the idea that, in fact, this two-dimensional surface, mosaic surface that I've just um, re-described, is in fact ought not to be seen as presented by Blake, but as presented by the children. So it's as though on the side of who is offering us the poem, not who is singing it, which is a different question. People sing. They sing, and um, they're not singing so that we can hear. They sing just to sing. Um, but when the poem is published, put on paper, circulated, filmed, digital videoed for MTV, then there's a huge other um, party to the poem, namely the reader or audience. And the nurse is not addressing, at the beginning of that poem, she's not addressing a reader or an audience. She's just musing out loud. Um, and even at the very end of the poem, when the little ones um, danced and laughed and sang and singed, as we say in English, and sung, um, and all, all the hills echo ed. Um, even at the end of the poem, um, it doesn't feel like that's information that readers are now supposed to be getting. It just feels like here's a, here's a resolution to this little play of dialogue that um, the poem has had. Um, but once we're in the picture, because the picture is presented to us, the two-dimensional picture is presented to us now um, as something that we are seeing or reading or um, experiencing. 
then we ask, and who's doing that presentation? And we were simply assuming, when we talked about the two-dimensional mosaic, that Blake was doing the presentation. But it turns out, I think, that it's much better to see the children as doing the presentation. That is, the children are imagining a world of innocence in which this is what the nurse would say and what they would say and how it would all end happily. And if we take that further step, we then have to say Blake is presenting not first a nurse speaking, then children speaking, then the nurse speaking, and then himself telling us how that all, all worked out. But Blake is presenting children thinking of a poem in which first a nurse speaks, then the children speak, then the nurse speaks again, then <coughs> they describe how it all works out. So that's the, that's the extra step. That is that, that we have to ask who the singer of the whole song is with its many voices. The song has many voices, but still it has one singer um, who presents, or one presenter, one director if this were a movie video if this were a music video, rather. Um, and we assumed that director was Blake, but Blake now wants us to see, no, the director isn't Blake. The director is the children themselves. Um, does that make sense or make it worse? It makes sense. Okay. Um, let's look um, at, let's start by looking at the um, Elizabeth Bishop version of um, Casabianca. I don't know the copy of this. I don't even know if I have a copy for myself. Um, I thought I did. Yeah, here it is. Um, I don't, but yeah. Oh, wait, no, I do. Here. Do you have an extra copy? For, I mean, not for. Yeah, he can. For. You can have my. I can use oh, my okay. Um, um, I could use one if somebody has an extra copy. Actually, I thought I had. Uh, I think it's probably in here. Okay, in the meantime, would someone read it aloud? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> you can share. It's in your book. There is a required there is a required text for the class, and it's in it. I thought it was a joke. That there was a required text? Yeah. Um, no, it's not in this version either. I'm going to have to look on with someone. That's good. Someone read it. The Elizabeth Bishop version. Yeah. Go, as well. You read yesterday, right? Or Monday? Well, all right. That's okay. Justly read twice. You can read twice. Okay, so thank you. So when we first were talking about this, um, people were seeing this as as um, dissing Hemans's poem somehow, as as undercutting it and subverting it. Um, do you still see it that way? Do you see it that way? Does anyone see it that way? Yeah, Ben. The line stammering elocution kind of made me think of like her idea of what it, what it looks like to have people standing in front of an endless line of children reciting this poem in front of right. the classroom. 
Yeah. So I think that's maybe that seems to be at least poking fun at it. Okay, yeah, sure. It's it's definitely poking fun at the cultural referent, which is all these kids memorizing and reciting this poem. That's what the schoolroom platform is also um, at the end of it, that the other sailors also wanted a schoolroom platform. Um, the schoolroom platform and the burning deck are somehow brought together in this poem. Um, and so it's taking this jingoistic jingle um, that Hemans' poem at least has turned into um, and treating it as a cultural referent. Um, so what do we think she's doing with it? To me, it's a really mysterious poem. Um, I found it mysterious since the first time I read it. Um, so I'm curious what you all think. Yeah, my. I mean, it's kind of equating the, like, the situation. Um, it's also somewhat fitting because the situation of the boy on the deck um, is probably about the same age as the kids who are reciting, mm -hmm. or this boy who's reciting this poem. Yeah. Um, and so it makes their situations similar. Mm -hmm. um, that they're both, like, being brave. And, like, the one boy can't save the boat, and the other boy doesn't really seem to be able to save his performance. Okay. Um, yeah, Ben. I thought of it, I mean, my first impression of it is that what she's criticizing is this, like, structurally perfect form of poetry. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, obviously her poem really breaks a lot of the, the poetic, poetic norms that Heman uses, which is perfect rhythm and rhyme. Mm -hmm. There's no flaw in mm -hmm. the original Casablanca poem. Yeah. And somehow to her, that's the same. Clinging to this form, this old form of poetry, is the same as refusing to leave a boat, even though your father's dead, and you're not gonna, you're not gonna help anyone by going down with it. Okay. All right. Good. Um, one way to see that is, um, does how many people um, know what the word enjambment means? Um, so not everyone does. Okay. Um, what does it mean? It means uh, when a line doesn't end. <coughs> properly with a comma or a semicolon at the end of a line of poetry. It's continued on to the next, therefore stressing that next part of the line. Yeah, so it, what, it, what it actually literally means is stepping over. Um, it's, uh, it's if, the, if you see the poem as a walk, or if you see lines of poetry as a walk that the poem takes from its beginning to the end, to its end. And enjambment is a place where the line steps over into the next line. Um, and from the French word jambe, meaning leg. Um, one feature of poetry, maybe the defining feature of poetry, is that poetry comes in lines. Um, that's why there are so few prose poems, and um, it's often almost a metaphor to talk about a prose poem. It just means that you get very poetic prose. Um, if anything defines poetry from Homer to E.E. E. Cummings. It's the presentation <coughs> of the poem in lines. Um, and poetic lines are a weird thing, if you think about it. They're a weird thing because what they do is they add another kind of boundary to a flow of words besides the normal boundaries that we find in flows of words, which are, you could say, um, roughly speaking, phrase and grammatical boundaries. Grammatical boundaries 
in general. Um, so words flow onward and then you pause and then they flow onward and then you pause. Um, if you're reading prose, you know that the pauses are where the punctuation marks go. Or if you're writing prose, um, then you know that you have to at least think about punctuation marks at places where it would be natural to pause. Um, poems add another boundary to that to those very obvious linguistic boundaries that you get in um, all language. And the other boundary that they add is the boundary of the line ending. So when you get to the end of a line in a poem, um, that's line endings are what make poems poems. Um, line endings are what you have to preserve when you quote a poem. This, by the way, is a tip for your paper. If you quote a poem, you always have to hit a return when you get to the end of a line. Um, if you're just quoting two lines, that is, if you're quoting it in, in your own prose, you, then you have to put a slash between um, the end of the line. So if you think about it, the slash, do people all know this? Um, you don't? Okay, so if you were to um, write something like um, Hemans describes how, quote, the boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled, or what is it, where all but he had fled? How does it go? Whence all but he when, Whence all, oh right, whence all but he had fled. <coughs> period, close quote. Fix the punctuation there. Then. Is a dash after deck? Not a dash, a slash. This is where slash fiction came from. Um, and what else do we have to fix? Capitalize whence. And capitalize whence. So this is a paper-saving way of indicating the line ending with a slash. So if you're quoting poetry and you get to the end of a line, if you're quoting it within your own prose, you put a slash at the end of the line to indicate it's a line ending, to indicate that in the original poem, it was the boy stood on the burning deck. New line, whence all but he had fled. Yeah? Do we also put slash on? There's a dot or comma after a sentence. Um, what do you mean? Like if, if it ends in a punctuation yeah. mark, you still have to put the dash. Um, yes, you do. You always have to indicate to a reader where the line ending is. Um, one reason is that there are there's something called that we'll, we may or may not talk about, something called internal rhyme. So if you look at ballads, for example, what you'll find is that ballads, um, see if you guys have the Ballad of East and West, <coughs> your version. I bet you don't because everyone now hates <coughs> it, but, um, but it's still, this version doesn't. Um, it's simply called the Ballad of East and West. Kipling? Kipling, yeah. Um,
Well, okay, so um, what you'll often get in ballads are lines that break in half because they have what's called an internal rhyme. So what you'll get is something like in the um, ballad of the nut brown maid begins, be it right or wrong, these men among on women do complain, affirming this, how that it is a labor spent in vain, for love them um, ne'er so well, um, uh, for, for, lo for love them um, oh so well, yet ne'er a deal, they love you back again. Now, be it right or wrong, these men are among, is one line. The next line is, on women do complain. Affirming this, how that it is, that's one line, a labor spent in vain. But those lines have a rhyme halfway through them. And so what happens there is if you quote that, um, there's a punctuation mark and a rhyme, but it's not a line ending. So what the slashes do, um, they used to be called poetic meter markup language. And what they do is they tell you how to parse um, the, they're not really called that, don't put that in your notes. Um, what they do is they tell you um, how to reconstruct the line of poetry so that it looks like it did in the original if you were to put it on the page. Um, so punctuation marks are there anyhow, but the slash here tells you go to a new line. And so that slash, as well as the capital letter at the beginning of the line, which most poems until the 20th century have, not all but most, that slash tells you it's a line ending. The really crucial thing to see is this is the one punctuation mark that we use in English that doesn't correspond to something that you're supposed to do with your voice. The slash in um, poetry is kind of like capital letters. It's something that's purely visual um, when you are um, using it in your typography, when, you, when you're using it as a character in your writing, but you still need it. The fact that it's purely visual tells you that line endings don't correspond to anything that's part of the normal meanings of our speech. When we pause, as I just did, that pause is part of what carries meaning in ordinary, in ordinary talk. Um, punctuation in writing is an imitation of the kind of pauses in ordinary talk, but that's not true of the slash. It's not true of line endings. So what do line endings do? Well, again, the peculiar thing about poetry is that Poetry is making you parse something that isn't simply a correspondent to meaning. Poems are always about a regularity of some sort of line ending. Rhymes always come at the end of a line. Um, that is, in a rhymed poem, you'll always find that the, end of the, that, the, that the ends of lines are what rhyme. Sometimes you'll get internal rhymes, but it's the end of the lines that rhyme. Another way of putting this is that the end of a line is, with vanishingly few exceptions, always the end of a word. Um, lines never end with the beginning of a polysyllabic word that then goes on into the next line. Um, there is a regularity in poems in which lines come to an end, but the only boundary that you can guarantee, not in E. Cummings, 
but in general, the only boundary you can guarantee at the end of a line is the end of a word. A line might end with the end of a phrase or with the end of a sentence or with the end of a clause or something like that. It might, but it doesn't have to. So there are two very basic kinds of lines. A line that is end-stopped, and that means that there's a punctuation at the end of the line, and you get to the end of the line, and you pause or stop. The boy stood on the burning deck, <coughs> whence all but he had fled. Um, is that, sorry, is that uh, one line or two in um, Hemans? That's it. So it's the boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. Um, okay. So, the boy stood on the burning deck, breath, whence all but he had fled. Um, does someone have it with them? Just read the next. No one has it. All right. Do you have it? Read, just read the... This is my version that I wrote. This is not oh, story. right. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, how many people did that, by the way? All right. Uh, we'll take five minutes for you guys to read them. Um, but do you have the original? Oh, that's the, the humans one? Yeah. That's in the one I just gave him. Oh, here it is. Um, here's part two. All right. Um, speak, Father, once again he cried, if I may yet be gone. And but the booming shots replied, and fast the flames rolled on. Upon his brow he felt their breath, and in his waving hair, and looked from that lone post of death, in still, in still, yet brave despair. The way Hemans writes it, there's always a pause at the end of the line. Not necessarily a punctuation mark, but if you were annotating it as an actor, you might put in little punctuation marks to indicate pauses. So, um, so in that um, stance, for example, upon his brow he felt their breath, comma, and in his waving hair, comma, and looked from that lone post of death no punctuation mark in Hemans, it simply goes on, in still yet brave despair. But you wouldn't want to read it as, and looked from that lone post of death in still yet brave despair. You would really want a little bit of a pause at death to emphasize it. Um, and if you were marking this up in your script, you might just put in a little carrot or something to make sure that you remembered to pause there. What does Bishop do? with that idea of, this, this is going back to what you guys were saying about the irreg irregularity or the more irregular way that Bishop writes the poem. Rob? Seems almost arbitrary where her line breaks are. But, but what in particular does she do? Yeah. Good, the nice. Way that the book could potentially be moving. Like, the other one is so steady, which doesn't really suit the way that the, like, the situation of the poem, whereas this one, like, loves the boy stood, stood on the burning deck trying to recite. Like, we're trying to say it, and he's trying to recite. So, we're <coughs> all sort of topsy-turvy right now. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Yeah, I think that's right. You get the stammering quality. Um... What does she do when she quotes the poem? What does she do that you should not do in your own writing? Yeah, Isabel. She breaks it up unnaturally. Like, 
Yeah. So what she does is she quotes the line, the boy stood on the burning deck, um, and she enjams that line, which was not enjammed in Hemans. So in Hemans, that's a single line. The boy stood on the burning deck. That should all be in a single line. What Bishop does is she has loves the boy stood on the burning deck. That's like Hemans. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck. But that's not in quotation marks. That's an indication of who love is. What is that boy doing? He's trying to recite the boy stood on new line, the burning deck, when there was no new line in the original. So already one way that she's messing with the original is by um, the way she is representing the lines on the page, the way she's redistributing line endings. Um, it's not a major point, but it's worth noticing that that's part of the effect of the irregularity here. Um, okay, so how many people see this as a critique of Hemans? That is what I think what people are saying about it is that um, Hemans has this jingoistic poem, um, and Bishop comes along to um, sort of make fun or sort of lament or complain about um, all these young children, in, maybe in a Blakeian way, all these young children who are being um, inculcated with jingoistic sentiment by being forced to memorize this poem when they're just these little children who are stammering and who can't even get it out. And is this a really good thing to see? Marielle. Yeah. Like she couldn't, Bishop couldn't write this poem saying, like, oh, Heman should have written this poem because look at all the poor children who have to recite it. Because I'm sure Heman didn't have that in mind. Yeah. Well, she might have, but yeah. A little bit. Um, but it, it, but it's okay. It's 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 the point is um, she certainly wouldn't have wanted to to become uh, the great jingoistic um, anthem of British imperialism. Let's say. Um, yeah. I mean, I think in the same way that she feels that about forcing these little kids to stammer elocution in front of a room. I think it's also what she feels about the ideology of the poem, which is there's something noble about going down with the ship. There's something good about that. Uh -huh. And I just don't think there is, especially for somebody writing after World War I, like Hemingway. Yeah. She would not, she's not, she's not buying into that rhetoric. She's not buying into the, the idea that people are inundating these kids with by forcing them to read this poem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Isabel. Um, she's also making her own Okay, yeah, the crucial word there is love. Um, in other words, what she doesn't, it would, I think the, the interpretation, <coughs> which I think is in the background of what she's doing, um, that, that, that um, we've been talking about so far, is an interpretation that would make a little, um, would be a little bit more central if the poem simply began, the boy stood on the burning deck trying to recite the boy stood on the burning deck. Um, the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. The obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors who would like a schoolroom platform too or an excuse to stay on deck 
stood on the burning deck, something like that. Yeah. Instead of a critique of of Heeman's poem, could it also be seen as it, almost a defense of Heeman's poem, or a defense of what she thought Heeman's original intention might have been? Like when she says, "The sun stood stammering elocution." while the poor ship went down in flames. Like, their true meaning was loss of poor ship. The ship's still going down, and these kids are just sitting there reciting it. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. Um, and ha- so how, does, how is that a defense? It, it's almost like, like Heman's had this original intent and meaning to it, and then... Oh, I see. Yeah, okay, it. good. Right. Yeah, I think, th- I, think, I think that's there also. I think still, though, that those are instruments to what the <coughs> subject of the poem really is, which is what, Isabel? What is this? Yeah. So the crucial first word, the repeated word, is love. What's the love's there? Just just um, unpack that apostrophe. Love yeah. If if we were this this is a, um, a condensed and and slightly um, Irishy way of saying what you would say in more formal prose. Love is the boy who stood on the burning deck. So um, everyone gets that, right? Loves the boy stood on the burning deck. Um, that's who that boy is, or that's what love is doing. So what would a poem, if you didn't know the Hemans, um, what would you think this poem was about? Most of you are seeing this as a critique of, of childhood education. Um, what if you take the word love seriously here? Yeah. Okay, bitter about the idea of love. What could you, what backstory could you reconstruct? What recent backstory could you reconstruct? Yeah. I think, I'm, like I said, I'm kind of sticking by my interpretation. I think she's bitter about the idea that the greatest act of love you can do is to burn alive on a ship. Or, and you can interpret that in terms of the education thing, too. Okay. The greatest act of love you can show toward poetry is to cling to this dying form. And the greatest act of love you can show for your country is yeah, it's to, to burn on the ship, exactly. Die. I think that's the the idea of love that she resents. Okay. Um, Isabel, what were you going to say? <laughs> um, what if you see it, just try it. This is like one of those duck-rabbit things. Um, you, know, you know the duck-rabbit uh, psychology Thing. It's it's one of those figures that you either see as a duck or a rabbit. Um, it's not a Rorschach, but it's 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 vaguely similar. Um, it's a very famous thing from the history of psychology that if I could draw, it would be really good. Um, but it's basically <coughs> here's a. Um, Um, yeah. No, can any does anyone know this? Yeah. Who can draw? No. <laughs> um, <coughs> it might be better if you do it horizontally. Um, you can see this figure. Either as no, I can't. Just can't do it. Either as a rabbit or a duck. I must say neither. Sorry. You want the picture? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Can you can you make it big? Yeah. Can you big in it? I think so. Make bigger. Just give it. 
right. Well, that's, a, that's okay. Just, just say increase your size and it'll do it. Seems right. pretty smart. All right, just show it to people. Yeah, it's actually very helpful on an iPad because of the way it flips. So, can you see it as a duck? Can you see it as a rabbit? Can you see it as both at the same time? No. No, it's either it's either a duck in profile or rabbit also or a rabbit also in profile. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's either a duck in profile or a rabbit in profile, and you can't see it. Has everyone seen it? Hold it up. Duck or rabbit? <laughs> or, you know, there's the one of the old crone and the young woman. That's a famous one. Or of Freud um, is another famous one. Um, so psychologists are really interested in this because what happens is our brain sort of um, interprets it as a whole and we can't see both at the same time. We can flip back and forth, but the flip occurs um, instantaneously. It's also the, the simplest ones are the cubes, which you can see um, either as tilted up or tilted down, right? But you can't see them as both. You can flip them. But um, when you flip, you flip totally. Um, so let's look at the poem as a, we, we could say in language, puns are the equivalent of that. That when a line is a pun, or when, when you hear a pun, um, the pun flips between two different meanings of a word. Um, and what makes it funny is the kind of um, oscillation between those two. Um, OK, let's try a duck rabbit thing with this poem and say that it's not at all about um, loving children or um, the history of um, English imperialism or the um, um, dismal uses to which Hemans' poem was put. Let, yeah. Yeah, so um, what I thought it was about was sort of love makes us do foolish, childish things. It turns us into these sort of helpless children. OK. And Yeah. All right, so the, so the burning ship that goes down in flames, what would that be a metaphor for in that case? Well, the whole ship in flames went down. What ship is that? Yeah. The <laughs> Yes, you couldn't resist, right? Um, yeah, the relationship. Um, yeah, that, that some disaster has occurred in her relationship um, to the person she loves. So read the poem that way, that love went down. The ship is on the rocks. Um, the relationship, the um, love of her life is now over. And so she wrote, Bishop wrote about 120 poems in her life. She's one of the um, poets who she worked for years, sometimes for decades, on a single poem. And she's one of the great poets um, who's written the least, um, become, become a great poet. Um, 
simply through the intensity of her individual poems rather than through having written a lot of them. Um, and this one, give it its maximal intensity, that love stood on the burning deck, um, but love's the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite the boy stood on the burning deck, even as the whole ship in flames went down. Um, love tried to keep it going. Um, so what does love staying on the burning deck when the whole ship in flames goes down, what would that mean about the relationship, about her attitude towards what's just happened? Yeah. That she's still clinging on to it. That she's still clinging on to it, um, that her love was um, so, I don't want to use the term of praise because it, it shouldn't be a term of praise, but so um, obsessive or so intense um, that, that even as the ship went down, um, she kept trying to say, kept trying to save it, kept trying to stay faithful to it. Um, stammering out elocution, why would a poet talk about standing on the burning deck, stammering out elocution? What would that be a metaphor for, for a poet? Yeah. I mean, um, she's probably trying to, um, like, if she's in a emotionally hard situation, she's probably trying to, like, write poems to express that or, like, ignore it or deal with it in some, some way. Yeah. But in that phrase, it doesn't really seem to be helping or working. And maybe the poems that she, she's making are bad, too. Yeah, okay, good. Um, Danielle? But she could be stammering out this very yes. same poem. Yeah, she could be stammering yeah. out with this very same poem, which goes a little bit with what Rachel was saying about its sta about the stammering quality of the poem. Yeah? Um, I'm really confused about the, the love that we're talking about here, because, like, what kind of love is it? Because like, the concept of love is really abstract, and I don't know, like, what kind of Okay, so the concept of love is abstract in the poem or in general, do you mean? I mean, in general, so it's hard to really know what Okay, but is it, is it abs do you have trouble knowing what love is in a love poem? If someone says no, this like is... romantic love? Yes. So it's romantic love? Yes. In this poem? Yeah, that's the rabbit that I want you to see. No, no one was taking it that way um, at first. Everyone was taking this as... Um, the boy Casabianca's love for his father or the love of country, the patriotism that the that um, that jingoistic history of British and American imperialism was was um, um, trying to instill in people and so on. No one was taking it as um, as romantic love um, until we concentrated on the fact that love is the first word and it's a poem and um, that at least suggests that you should try to take it that way. That what this is about, what the poem is about, that doesn't mean we've understood the poem yet, and we're going to stop now and, and people can recite. But what the poem is about is the failure of romantic love, is some disaster in her romantic life. Nick? Um, this may be kind of a stretch, but loves, loves kind of looks like, or it's not a verb, but it can act like a verb because of the way it's said. Uh-huh. And so it makes it sound like there's kind of an empty subject to the poem. Okay, yeah. She loves the boy who stood on the burning deck. 
Um, nice. Yeah. She still loves him, the boy who stood on the burning deck. If love's that boy, who is love um, in mythology or in allegory or in um, the history of stories about love personified? Because love here is being personified. He's a boy. What boy is that? Cupid. That's how you would know it was romantic love. Um, all right. Who wants to read their their um, parodies? Those are not fair. Sure. Go for it. <clears throat> All right. Oh wait, who's starting? Sorry, yes. yeah, you are. Um, I kind of I stuck with my duck interpretation in my duck yeah, interpretation okay. of this poem. <clears throat> the boy stands on the burning deck, whence all but he have fled. The terror of his father's wrath hangs dark above his head. The cannon blasts still thunder on as day gives way to night. The evening sun sinks down its brow to shroud the dreadful sight. But still the fire lights the sky in hues of red and gold, consuming all the valor and the mantras of the bold. The boy is rooted to the boards beneath the smoking flag, for which his tyrant father sleeps within the Nile's drag. O crown, O state, where is your hold? Who keeps your law and creed? When soldiers flee their sacred posts like captive rodents freed. And why of all the souls aboard does this lone child stay? As flame and death draw ever die, he jigs his lips to pray. That's great. Thank you. I'm not done. Oh, perhaps it is his childish. It, perhaps it is <laughs> it's his so childish cool. dream of Sparta's final stand that bids him offer up his life for country, king, and land. When hell devours the deck at last, the victors cheer and crow, unconscious of the crackling boy who was the last to go. Now morning dawns, the stink of meat rolls o'er the Nile land. A tide of blood and ashes laps serenely on the sand. As for the ship's courageous boy, his remains aren't hard to find. He blackly bobs downriver with a thousand of his kind. All right. <coughs> Thank you. Yes. It's a little further than that. Um, the boy stood on the burning deck, and terror filled his heart. The deaths of men broached battle's end before a young life could start. His humble cries, as shrill as death, found none but corpses' ears. A father's love in combat spent, relinquished to his fears. The creeping bright inferno, as cruel almost as men, leapt at the youth to hold him close as none e'er would again. But still he screams, say, father, say, if yet my task is done as if a father who bled for glory could ever save a son. The water shimmered blue and red as midnight danced with flame, the crackling of the mast countred with a whispered father's name. There came a burst of thunder sound, the boy, aware was he, ask of the winds that far around with fragments strewed the sea. They have not answer for the slaughter as soldier's gun or knife, for why the world should not weep thereafter at a sweet and wasted life. All right. Yes, we should, we should be getting everyone to be memorizing these. Um, maybe if Newt Gingrich is elected, um, we won't. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. Go for it. Um, the boy stood on the deck, watching what at his feet lay dying, the flames engulfing the wreck amongst which his father was lying. He watched him cough, his eyes covered by his waves, his weak hands now that once were tough. Signaling, signaling out into the blaze. Asking for this one last thing, his son, to stay with him. 
a cry not even birds would sing, the lyrics far too grim. And so the boy there did remain, his feet firmly planted. To the fire he did not complain, instead a tune he chanted. Of what he could have been, and now would never be, a stupid fool who against his father would not send just another sailor lost to sea. All right. This, uh, yeah, I think maybe all, all students in the U.S. should rewrite. It would be good. It would be a good thing. Thank you. Um, anyone else? All right, can you pass it in? Um, I gave you guys when you were old. Um, does anyone need copies? Um, do you need a copy? I mean, yeah. Is it in the anthology? Um, I'm not sure that it is. Um, I'll put it on latte. Uh, wait, no, here's another. Who's this by? Sorry? Who's this by Yates. Anyone else need it? Starting next week, we're going to go. We're going to start looking at longer poems. How we'll do it, I don't know, but we will. But tomorrow, let's look.